0: The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Turn to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to be, first of all, looking at verses 17 through 24. And we're looking at our partnership. Paul loves to honor men and women who serve Christ. In this morning, there's no difference. It's Philippians 2:17 to 24. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the, the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Now, from time to time, people object to living the normal Christian life. It's easy to see how it's impossible. They think it's very impossible to live. And any of you who are in the sales field might get a glimpse of this. If you just had a record year and things are going great and your boss comes to you and says, wow, great year, your quota is increased by 5% next year. And you know, you suck it up and say, okay, that's a good challenge and I'll get to it. But if he comes to you and he says, you know, your quota is up 25% next year or 50%, you're probably dusting off your resume because it's impossible in your mind. You know, unless you're in a startup like, like Microsoft or Apple or something like that, those things just don't happen. And this is the way the Christian life often strikes people when they begin to understand more about it. When you first become a Christian, you have a very exciting opinion of yourself and everything. You realize what Christ has done for you, and you're excited about that. And, and you realize how far you've come. But then you begin to get into the word, and you begin to study, and you begin to discover that God wants you to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And you get a glimpse of his love, and his compassion, and his wisdom, and his understanding, and his holiness, and all his other perfections. And like the salespeople, you begin to think, this is impossible. And so you kind of settle down for a settled-for life. Just get by. Trust God to take care of you. Well, it's true that in this life you will never be completely like Christ and that much of your sanctification will be realizing how much you're not like Christ. But you and I are to become like Him. The Bible teaches that although God's standards are high and thus seem impossible, God provides supernatural resources for you and I to be conformed to the image of His Son. God helps the Christian to put the highest of these principles into practice. Now, this is taught in Philippians chapter 2. The previous verses have shown that the central theme of chapter 2 is the Christian life. In the opening verses, Paul wrote that the Philippians were to let nothing be done of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, each was to consider others more highly than themselves. They were to be humble and obedient to God. Jesus Christ bestowed the, the, the way for us when He showed His path from the throne and glory to the cross. And He showed us a life here on earth that we saw in recent weeks about how we're to, to live like Christ did. And because the Philippians are children of God, they are to do things pleasing to God without rebellious complaints Without internal disputes, they were to be without blame in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation among whom they are to shine like stars in this depraved world. That is to be their high and unwavering standard. Now at this point, someone might object, yeah, that might be good in theory, but it's pretty hard in practice. How in the world are we to meet such standards? Well to to prove it's possible, Paul now shares three characters to show us how it can be done. Paul talks about himself first of all, Paul an apostle, then Timothy, a young minister, and then Epaphroditus, a layman in remind in remainder of chapter two, Paul uses three, these three people to show you and I how the standard of living to cry for Christ and the standard of living like Christ and radiating Christ is clearly possible. First of all, Paul talks about himself. The first example Paul uses is himself, but he uses it briefly, and we'll hear more about him in chapter 2. But Paul says in Philippians 2.17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice sacrificial suffering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Now, to understand what this verse means, you need to understand Paul's image of a drink offering. The verb that's translated pour out is a technical word for a certain part of a sacrifice that the Greeks and the Romans would do. They would pick a very choice animal, they would kill it, and then burn it on an altar as a sacrifice. And then after that, they did what they called a libation, where they would take wine and they would pour it out on the hot altar and immediately it would puff up and steam. And this was their drink offering. So Paul is referring to this offering and he says, I know that you are worried about me because I'm in prison, because I'm in chains. But what he's saying is here, look, I'm not the important thing. The important thing here is that your faith is growing. That your faith is being nurtured. Paul saw saw his life as given over completely to Christ for his glory and especially for the advancement of the Philippians' faith. Paul lived selflessly for Christ and for others. I kind of think about a mom and dad who have a baby born for the first time, and, you know, up until that point, their life has been themselves. You know, each one's individually and then together as a couple And now this little one comes along and all of a sudden the focus is on the little guy. And you nurture him and you protect him and you clothe him and you wash him and you teach him and you raise him up. That's your whole focus. And this is literally what Paul is saying. He looked at the Philippians almost as his children. And his sole desire was to see them raised in that image of God. Your faith is the substantial and valuable offering to Christ. So Paul says, when I am killed, it will only be a drink offering poured out for a far greater offering of your faith. Paul lived totally for Christ and for others. So imagine when Paul was was minimizing his situation in comparison to the Philippians' faith that could be a crowning achievement and one God could raise for his glory. This is how Paul used his life to live for others. Now, you and I are not apostles, but imagine the sole purpose of your life is others. Imagine your thought process and how you conduct your life as one that can bring glory to God by meeting and helping others and helping them in their faith. Do we show such humility to other Christians? If not, we should apply Paul's selfless evaluation and have that perspective Paul's frame of mind was not something that came about instantly either. It was a process. In fact, if you remember, before his salvation, it was all about him. But once he was saved, it was all about Christ in every part of his life. So if we would emulate Paul in his self-evaluation, we must be prepared to start at the beginning. We must learn small lessons of humility and allow him to bring us into the greater use. And then he talks about Timothy. The second of Paul's examples is Timothy, the young man whom Paul had often taken with him on various missionary journeys, and Paul speaks very eloquently about Timothy. He says in chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. Now, <clears throat> these verses tell us four basic things about Timothy that all of us should be able to emulate. First of all, Paul had no one else like Timothy. I think Paul means that he had no one else like himself. Timothy was like Paul. Paul had been writing about the attitude of the mind, uh, He, he think about thinking humbly of itself, about, and about serving others and living for others. And here's this Timothy who's living just like Paul. Timothy also lived for others. He was self-effacing in his conduct, and he lived to meet the needs of others. Secondly, Timothy was concerned for others. He cared for them naturally. In fact, he served them with the disposition of a true shepherd who was faithful in caring for the flocks. We have a similar example of this in the Old Testament in Jacob, one of the Old Testament patriarchs. Now, Jacob was not very praiseworthy. He was known more as a liar and a cheat. But as a shepherd, he was praiseworthy. Jacob was a shepherd who was faithful in his care for the flocks. And one particular example, uh, when his uncle Laban uh, reproached him for starting suddenly with the flocks, he said in Genesis 31, verses 39 through 41, "'What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. And there I was, by day and the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sheep fled from my eyes.' These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. So Jacob truly told the truth, and even though he was poorly treated, he still cared for the flocks. Another example is uh, on another occasion when uh, Esau, his brother, wanted to get to the place that he lived and wanted to rush ahead. He came back and said this in Genesis thirty-three, thirteen through 14. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds, uh, and, and herds are a care for me. If they are driven too hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my lord and Saviour, He was a sensitive shepherd. He was a caring shepherd. And Timothy was just like that. He had great concern for God's people, and he led them gently. And this is so important in a shepherd. So when you consider yourself either a leader in your family or your children or your Sunday school class or your small group, do you lead gently at the pace of the sheep? This is a fascinating thing. And one of the great instructions to Timothy found in 2 Timothy 4.2, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, or as the King James puts it, with long suffering. He had a shepherd's heart. He was compassionate for his people. He led them carefully along the path. And this was a heart that was recognized, and and Paul literally praised him for this. Number three, his concern for Jesus Christ. The third thing Paul praises Timothy for is his concern for Jesus Christ. Timothy put Jesus first in everything. Uh, and this, he stood head and shoulders about everyone else that was around him. It's easy to put other things first, isn't it? You can put your career first, your plans first, your family first, your hobbies first. If you do these things, you will become distorted in your directing life. Timothy put Christ first, together with Christ's interest, and the other things fell into place. And then fourth, Timothy had learned to work with others. Verse 22 says... But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Now, how often we want to be independent. We want to serve God, but we like to do it our way. We have our own way of doing things. A mark of a real Christian maturity is the ability to work with others in a clear plan that glorifies Jesus Christ. And, and what this does, interestingly here, is it also solves the generation gap. Notice verse 22 again. He says, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. This also says as much about Paul and his ability to work with others as it does about Timothy. But notice again that Paul referred to Timothy's service as a son with his father. This is an expression that one would not normally use in antiquity and even today. The normal duty of a son was to obey his father. Paul's readers would have expected the verse to say, as a son who has served me in the work of the gospel, instead of, Paul says, Timothy worked with me. Now you see, this is an attitude of heart that works both ways. And this is the real answer to what some have called the generation gap. Generation gaps have always been with us. In fact, interestingly, I found this week, Socrates had this statement. He said, quote, Our youth know love and luxury. They they have bad manners, contempt for authority, disrespect for older people. Children nowadays are tyrants. They no longer rise when their elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble their food, and tyrannize their teachers and you thought it was only your kids. And this was written... Well, Socrates was born in 470 BC, so it was written in that time. Things have never changed. And the Bible is full of conflicts between fathers and sons. But all the problems that can rise between generations could have arisen between Paul and Timothy. But it's not to rebel against parents or rebelling against the older generation. It's to work with them. So if you're here this morning and you're part of the younger generation, there is a real call for you to work with your parents and the older generation in a team effort to glorify Jesus Christ. And this verse speaks also to parents or the older generation. You are to lead your children to become faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. You are to encourage them in their walk, learning to walk with the gospel. And it's a team effort. And imagine parents training your children so when they get old enough, they can actually work with you in a ministry. They can actually work side by side with you. Now, Timothy wasn't raised by a father. He was raised by a couple of women. But the the working dynamic that Paul and Timothy had was like a father and a son. And he respected Timothy. And Timothy respected Paul. And there is a mutual respect that only can be achieved when both are living for Christ. And that is a beautiful statement to see here for for all of us, no matter what our age group is. You have a role of supervising, supervising and training, parents. But we must not forget that actually to serve with them is a tremendous blessing. It's so much easier to raise children with a common goal of glorifying Christ than exercising constant discipline without direction. Include your children in ministry. Include the younger generation. And that's why when we work with our middle school and our, and our senior high students, we try to encourage them in the things of the faith, that they can have a part of it. Now we come to a very unique character. Epaphroditus. Now I can imagine you've just heard these two individuals and you're thinking, okay, Paul. Guy's a, he's an apostle. Come on. And Timothy, he's a junior Paul. He's, these two are unit guys. I'm just somebody sitting in the pew. I'm, I'm just somebody that comes to church on Sunday. Well, guess what? That's who Epaphroditus was. He was a man... Maybe sitting in front of you this morning, or alongside you, or behind you. He was the guy sitting in the pew. And yet, look at what Paul did with this man, and what God did with him. Philippians 2, 25-30. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my needs. And honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Of all the men that Paul honors in the book of Philippians, he honors this man above all. Paul selects him as deserving highest honor because of his self-evasing service for other Christians. And he says in verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my needs. So here's a man just like you and I. He's no different than any of us, except he's given his life totally to Christ. And he has become a sweet smell in the nostrils of God. And he is being used mightily. It is as if Paul is writing a political speech here, because the way he is just building him up. Paul is laying it on about this dear saint. And what's what has made him so different? Well, there's four things he mentioned in that verse. He's a brother, he's a fellow worker a fellow soldier and a messenger of the Philippian Christians. Now when you think about a brother, this whole idea of brotherhood wasn't known back then. I mean in the military where men went into battle shoulder to shoulder, they were a brotherhood because they put their lives on the line together. And then the church came along, or Christianity came along, and now you have people bought by the blood of Christ, who were once dead in trespasses and sins, and now, having been saved, are spending eternity with each other forever. And there's a new brotherhood. And so Paul refers to him as my brother. I'm sure you refer to different Christians as your brother or your sister. When you look around here, everyone who is saved here this morning will be together forever. For all eternity. We're a brotherhood. And this was the message that he was getting across. But he's calling Epaphroditus this, a layman, a pew sitter, if I can put it that way. They were joined for eternity. And then he calls them a fellow worker. Paul praises Epaphroditus for proving himself to be a fellow worker. It reminds me of the praise that Jesus Christ gave the Ephesian church in Revelation when he said in Revelation 2-3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Epaphroditus was this kind of worker. He was enduring patiently. He was bearing up for the name of Jesus Christ, and he's not growing weary in well-doing. And these are characteristics that should be true of you and me. We should be willing to bear up. We should be willing to not be wary in glorifying Jesus Christ. Epaphroditus was this kind of worker. So are we a working church? Could God look at us as he did in this church and say the very same things about you and I? Well, well, what is a characteristic of a working church? Well, let me just throw a couple in here. We work to show ourselves approved by knowing the word of God. A true working Christian takes the time necessary to know the Word of God and make it part of their heart and a part of their very breath, particularly when people call on them to give a testimony. A working church works to better itself. It serves wherever necessary to make it better. It gets involved in everything that can bring glory to Christ as a church, and then it works to build the church. That is, people are actively going into the community and bringing people in. I have a message that can can, can secure your eternity forever. Are you interested? At least come to my church and let's talk. Let's see what's here for you. That's a mark of a working church. And then, of course, a working church is sharing the light of truth wherever they go. Do you realize that wherever you go during the week, You are an extension of Grace Fellowship Church. What people see in you is what they believe about this church. And a working church are those that seek to bring glory to God by being his servant and his tools wherever they go. And then he calls them a a fellow soldier. Epaphroditus fought shoulder to shoulder with Paul. And Paul uses the word as fellow soldier to basically say that this wasn't an easy work. It was a battle. In fact, Ephesians 4, 6 and 12, 6 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul knew what he was up against. Epaphroditus knew what he was up against. So shoulder to shoulder they fought the battle for Christ you know there are a lot of times during the week you know i'll be sitting there working and i'll get a phone call hey pastor how can i pray for you ah my heart sinks wow thank you or someone will just stop in hey i hope you don't mind me stopping in but i just felt led to pray for you what do you need how can i help these are fellow soldiers these are people who are coming shoulder to shoulder, not just with me, but with each one of us coming together. How can I help you? What do you need that I can help with? That's the mark of a fellow soldier. And this is the kind of man Epaphroditus was. He was willing to serve Paul in any way Paul needed. That, he was there for him. And then he was a messenger of the Philippian Christians. This was the high point of Paul's praise. Remember, Paul was in prison and most of his friends had deserted him except Timothy and Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was a model of a selfless Christian. What was Paul thinking about in the last dark days of his life? You know what he was thinking about? He was thinking about the needs of other Christians and he wanted to send to them his very best. Timothy in That's what Paul was thinking about. Not, was he going to die tonight? Was he going to be sacrificed tomorrow? But how can I continue to build the faith of these people? You and I are never to stop building the faith of others around us. We're never to stop being available for Christ. We're never to stop allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us. You know, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I I get frustrated with church. I don't know about you. Every week, it's the same thing. We come in, we worship, we take the offering, we hear a message, we go out. And what changes? Have we changed? Have we become the tool of God to minister in this dying, sin-sick world? We need to love the people in this world. We need to love those who don't have the gospel. We need to be such a shining light that God can use us in every situation. But if we're not careful, we find ourselves being very critical of the world around us. We're critical of what we see in the political arena. We're critical of what we see in laws being passed and how people are living their lives. And all I can think of is Stephen when he was being stoned and he cried out, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus said the same thing from the cross when they were hanging him. He said, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do you and I look at that mess we call the world and say, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then say, God, send me. Let me be an Epaphroditus. Let me be the one you use to go out and share this life-giving message that will radically change this country. But all across America, people go to their safe little churches and they worship and do their thing and they go off and nothing changes. The message that God has given us with these three men is that, yes, you can live for Christ. Yeah, Paul was an apostle, but God called him to that role. Yes, Timothy was a pastor, and God called him to that role. And yes, Epaphroditus was a pew sitter, and God called him to a role. If you're here this morning and you know Christ as your Savior I guarantee you by the authority of this book, you have been called to serve Christ. There is nobody that just coasts in this world. All of us are actively serving Him. So can we live for others? Uh, God is calling you this morning to serve Him. And we are to be like Christ, the greatest humble servant who ever lived. And this is why we saw several weeks ago when we went through about Christ and his temptations and everything that it was on his human side where all his testing was, so he could show you the way to live. This week, we honor those who selflessly gave themselves for freedom of a country. Would we give ourselves for freedom from hell? We honor men and women who gave their lives to save this country and the freedoms, we believe. But you and I have a truth that will eternally free them. Are we willing to be used by Him to give that message and make a difference? All of us are faced with a choice. But the beauty is, when God calls you and you obey, (laughs) there's no limit There's no limit to what God can do through you. And you're looking at the chief pew sitter, right? All those years I sat in the second pew from the back there. Now look at me. Yeah, you'll be careful if you say yes. But I promise you, you will enjoy life like you never did before. He must increase, and we must decrease and God will get the glory for you through your lives. Father, we thank you this morning for these powerful examples of these three men who so selflessly gave of themselves for the cause of Christ, and they served Paul like no one else. Lord, I know that here this morning there are many who your hand of calling is upon, Many are serving you according to that calling, and we rejoice in that. We praise you for that. But there are still more who are not willing to let go. God, encourage them. Draw them by your Spirit to a life that is like none other, to a joy that's unspeakable, to an amazing grace that they haven't even begun to furrow the soil. Help us to surrender to you in all things. And God, I'll just give you the glory for what you're going to do. For it's in Christ's name. Amen. God bless.